um, open your Bibles to John chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, our, uh, we have ushers that are coming down front. If you just slip up your hand, they would uh, be glad to give you a copy. I think it is page uh, 582 in the Bible that we're, we're giving you. So, uh, And by the way, if, if you don't own a Bible, um, we would love to give you this as a gift. So please feel free to take this with you and, uh, and use it and discover who Jesus claims to be and what he claims to offer. But uh, John chapter 8 Page 582 um, is where we're going to be studying today. Like I said earlier, the uh, series we've been going through is this encountering Jesus. Who is this Jesus? We took a look at the cross on Good Friday. We, we took a look at the resurrection on Easter. Um, we took a look last week at the pervasiveness of sin that it's far, far darker and more dreadful than we ever feared. Um, our issues are deep-rooted and they're uh, cataclysmic. They're just... They're horrible. They destine every man to hell forever because of how messed up we are. We looked at that last week. Today we're going to look at the claims of Christ and what he said about himself and his offering for us. And then the next week we're going to look at him carrying our burdens. And finally we'll finish with a look at faith. What is it to believe? What does faith in Christ look like? And that's what we're, what we're going to deal with. I have to apologize before we get started. I didn't sleep much last night. And so I took a five-hour energy about two hours ago. <laughs> So there are two possibilities on this outcome. This message will be over in five minutes because my heart is going like this. Or I could pass out and I'll need someone to resuscitate me. So if you have CPR training, be ready to, to serve, okay? Um, I'm hoping I survive it. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer it uh, out loud. Just think it through. Have anybody in here ever had something they've said that they regret? Yeah? There's probably buckets of things. And, and uh, I ask that question, and why I ask the question when I'm writing my own notes, I go, well, what are the, what are the, how do I narrow the field of what I choose to share? There's so many regrets I have. Regrets like uh, my first, my first um, construction job was working for the laborers union in Chicago. These are big boys, and they play hardball, right? They do. And I remember working for this foreman. We were pouring uh, lots of concrete for a phone building, an AT&T phone building. And we were pouring a lot all day long. And I didn't, I didn't feel like the foreman either knew what he was doing or knew how best to use me, whatever. So I mentioned it to one of my coworkers. And he said, here's what you do. When he tells you to do something, tell him to do it. So we were in the middle of a job. And that wonderful nugget came to my mind. And I said to the foreman, hey, why don't you do it if you can do it better? And I almost lost my job and got escorted off the, off the job site. Bad thing to say. Not good. Um, I, re- I regret my first married Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know how that goes. I don't know how it goes for you. But when I, when I took my bite of the first crunchy jello of my life, <laughs> I mentioned it. Just as, a, you know, just as an encouragement that we don't do crunchy jello. And that didn't go good. It didn't go good. So I regret that. And I regret thousands of other things I've, I've said in my life. There are some who would say that the passage we're looking at today are words that Jesus would regret saying. Because he doesn't, he doesn't say just common things, average things that let people kind of take it or leave it. He says things that are so huge that the consequence is what we ultimately know is, is death or judgment or, or whatever. 
And so we're going to deal with that today. And by the way, Jesus didn't make a mistake in what he said. He was precise in what he said. This was not a slip of the tongue. This was not a uh, poor choice of words. Jesus was exactly right in what he said. And so he knew that what he was saying was the foundation of Christian faith. It was the foundation of hope for sinners. It was, it was everything to mankind. That's why he said it. And so I want to read this short section of scripture in John chapter 8. Let me give you a little context before I do. We're going to just pull four claims out of this passage and then make some observations for us to leave with here this morning. Um, but let me get you in context. Here, here is uh, Jesus talking to, and they're described here, Jews who believed in Jesus. Now, before you make a mistake of thinking that means conversion, it doesn't. These are a group of people who are hanging around Jesus, who are cool with what he's doing. They have a mental assent to the action that's going on, but they don't have true converted belief. And that gets exposed later when Jesus says, you're the, your, son's, your, your father is the devil. So it, there's this wonderful uh, interchange that happens between Jesus and these quote-unquote followers of Jesus. And they're having a debate on whose father is their father specifically about Abraham. So uh, Abraham comes up, Jesus brings him up, and they say Abraham was our father, and Jesus says, no, he's not. And Jesus is talking about the father of faith, not of bloodline, right? So as a Jew, clearly Abraham, they could trace their lineage to Abraham. But as regarding the faith and true converted faith, believing in God in the ways that Abraham did, and it was credited as righteousness, they didn't have it. So Jesus is pointing out the difference, and they can't get it. And that's where we are in the story, starting in verse 42. Let me read this for us. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says, and the reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, How? now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, for I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. You're not 50 years old yet, the Jews said to him, and you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Four claims that Jesus makes in this passage, and they're a great follow-up to what we talked about last week. Last week, we looked at the uh, horrible news 
that our sin is really, really bad. And the fact that it's tainted every human being. No one is righteous, not even one. Everybody, no matter who you are, um, you don't have the luxury or, uh, of measuring yourself on a horizontal plane, looking around a room like this and saying, well, at least I'm not like them. The scriptures make it very clear that God's standard is his standard. His standard is a holy standard. Peter tells us, be holy as I am holy. So, therefore, everyone falls short. And that's the, that's the bad news that we start this whole, this whole section with. And Jesus begins perfectly here in our study today, claiming to be without sin. In contrast to every man, woman, and child who's ever lived on this planet who are totally tainted and, and twisted with sin, Jesus steps up and says, I don't have. Pretty big claim, right? Look at it with me in, in verse 46 again. He says to these Jews, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? That's a pretty bold claim. Um, the re- there's a reason why you don't hear that said a lot. It's because they would be lining up like planes on a runway to point out my failure. And your failure, wouldn't they? We have so many, we can't even count them. We don't even remember. Our our sins uh, are bigger than our memories. Isn't that true? Jesus says this bold thing like, hey, can anybody find fault? Now, I don't know the distance in time between that statement in verse 46 and then his final statement, and I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe in me? Maybe he did this huge, dramatic, pregnant pause. Maybe he said, can anyone find fault in me? Am I guilty of any sin? Pause. Leaving room for somebody to jump in there, and nobody does. Nobody makes this accusation towards him. Jesus can make this statement because he was without sin. Now, there are some serious factors we need to take into account here that are very important. It's important to note that they didn't find fault in him. They were trying to discredit him. They had an issue with what he said, and given that opportunity, no one said anything. That's, that's the first thing. The only thing they came up with was name-calling. They called him a Samaritan and demon-possessed. Now, Samaritan was like, hey, you're a half-breed. You don't even belong. You don't, you're not even worth it. That's one. And, and the second thing is the ultimate slight would be to say you're spiritually a half-breed. You're demon-possessed. You don't even, you don't even belong here. Right? And just a side note, by the way, if you're in an argument with somebody and they start calling you names, you've, you've won. <laughs> That's just, just a tip, right? Um, <laughs> but the second thing I want you to notice here is, is the important claim. It's an important claim because someone sinless needs to be our Savior. It's absolutely essential if there's going to be hope for sinners. If sin is to be forgiven... If salvation is to be known, if God is to be our Father and heaven to be our home, if those are true, then someone sinless has to represent us. Do you understand? So if you're in this journey trying to discover who is this Jesus, this is the most significant part of the story. Like I can tell tell you that we are both sinners, that we all struggle with sin. But if there is no perfection in the sacrifice made for sin, we got no hope. We might as well close the books and go distract ourselves because there is no hope after this. But Jesus makes this huge claim to be the the satisfaction for the wrath of God in, in in our lives. We need someone sinless to pay for our sin because you and I, we can't do it. We can all die, but we can't make up for sin. We can't make up for all the lives and and all the affairs and 
all the hatred and all the jealousy and all the coveting and all the deceit, we can't make up for that. We can't, there's nothing that we as people can do. Someone has to satisfy this unbelievably tall standard of God. So Jesus' perfection meets that need. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, if you're just visiting with us for the last couple weeks, I'm going to throw on you some pretty heavy-duty doctrine, okay? Um, don't be afraid. I hope we can explain it, right? There is an event taking place in this passage that, that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, this idea of double imputation. This wonderful transaction that, that God has provided for sinners of whom we have no hope if, if God doesn't respond. So here's the deal. Jesus in his humanity lived a perfect life. He satisfied God in all ways yet without sin. He didn't ever sin. Perfection. He was tempted, didn't fail. Right? He suffered, he didn't fail. He was holy, right? That holiness and our sinfulness collide. All right? At the cross of Jesus Christ, this, this sin of ours, this weight of ours, this inability of ours gets transferred from our account, which is we're totally bankrupt, and it gets transferred to Jesus so that when Jesus is dying on the cross, all of the wrath of a holy God is poured out exactly on your sin and my sin. Not one particular failure is overlooked. Not one deception not one little bad motive, not one little lustful thought, all of it, all of it, way down on Christ. God was somehow supernaturally to transfer all of our failures to Jesus so that God could pour out holiness and wrath on Christ right there. And the other side of this transaction is that somehow the perfection and righteousness of Christ was transferred to me. You see, my sin to Christ his righteousness to me, so that standard of First Peter that God says and, and that we must be holy is totally met, covered in the righteous robes of Christ, this unbelievable good news, what I don't have, what I can't get any other place at all that no human can earn or work for, God provides simply by faith. Take what Jesus has done. It's amazing, right? Take what Jesus has done. He'll give you righteousness for your sinfulness. You see why he has to be sinless? You see why that claim is so big? It's such great news that he did satisfy God in all ways, his father, and never sinned. There's another claim that he makes in verse 51. He says, I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus says uh, an amazing thing, um, that his followers who choose to... Um, Follow him, won't die. Now, if the Jewish leaders at the time uh, would take the time instead of ridiculing him and name-calling him and were just simply to ask a question, they would realize what Jesus was saying. He wasn't talking about physical death because you know the rules, right? The stats on death are pretty impressive. One out of one. We all die. That's just the way it is. So Jesus wasn't saying, hey, by the way, you won't taste physical death. He was talking about spiritual death. And, and let me describe it this way. Spiritual death is separation from God forever under the weight of the consequences of your sin. That's spiritual death. The scriptures describe it as, as hell, a place of torment where, where our sins forever and ever will be paid for. Never, no, never fully dealt with, but always, always punished. 
So he claims to be um, the way to eternal life. And he makes it really, really clear here that it's talking about separation from God. There are people that I've met with and people that I've talked to in my lifetime, some who would say the reality, uh, God is a reality for those who choose to believe in him, but he's not a reality for, for me. You ever heard that? Like this relativism thing, like if you choose, great, he's your reality, but he's not my reality. That is not an option here. That's not an option. Let me just try to prove my point. This creator God who sustains all of life that we know, who makes the sun rise and the, the moon rise and the rain fall and crops to grow and air to be there and for your molecules not to vaporize, all this stuff that we just live in is true for those who believe God and those who deny God. So it doesn't do an atheist any favors for him to say, I don't believe. So there is now no experience of separation from God. There is no uh, consequence like that, right? The separation of God, wait, I don't have to deal with because I don't believe there's a God. It doesn't matter. Because right now you can say there is no God. You can say I don't buy this scripture thing. And yet you experience all the benevolent grace of God as he waits for you. As he tells you this truth, as you sit here and hear the gospel. He's not crushing you for your rebellion. He's offering a chance to, to hear and believe. And he, he graciously lets you have good days. He lets your kids grow up and you enjoy things that every human gets to enjoy. They're not necessarily Christian things. They're human things. And God cares for those things. He's gracious to everyone. And if you, if you deny his existence and his provision in Jesus Christ, you will one day, not yet, but one day, experience total darkness. I'm not talking about no light. I'm talking about separation from this benevolence that right now you take for granted. Do you get my point? Every human who ever lived loves the good stuff of which God is the author of. Give me the good stuff. Give me health. Give me happiness. Give me people. Give me family. Give me that stuff, God. And God graciously does to all people. I've got a whole bunch of unbelievers who deny the existence of God who experience a very good life of which God is giving to them. But one day, one day, because of our sin, God will stop it. And there will be no more benevolence. There will be no grace. There will be no light. It'll be separation forever. Do you see my point? And Jesus claims to be the way, the way to eternal life. In fact, in John 14, 6, he says, not just that he is a way, what does he say? The way. He absolutely removes any alternatives. He's saying, I'm, in, I'm the exclusive path to life. To salvation and peace and God, I am the only way to it. He makes it exclusive. In fact, in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 4, Peter says that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. No other name. So all throughout the scriptures, the Bible is very, very narrow on what, what it takes for a man to have his sins dealt with and to have hope for tomorrow. There aren't options. It's Jesus or nothing. It's exclusive. The implications are enormous, right? So here's what it means. That if, if we're to be saved... And by that, I'm going to define it for you. If we're to have our sins forgiven and have God love us and know us and accept us, not because of my efforts, but because of the righteousness of Christ, if that's going to happen, 
and I don't have to bear the weight of my stupid choices the rest of my eternity, then it has to happen with more than just mental assent. You can't just be cool with Jesus. You can't just say, I get this, and I'm all right with that, and yeah, he's the son of God, and yeah, he died on the cross. You can't just mentally go through the outline. You have to place your faith and trust in it. There's something radically different. Let me give you another biblical word. It's called repentance. Like the picture of what it is to go from here to here is repentance. Like, God, I see it. I see my sin and my inability, and I don't have any other options. You're the only hope I have. Like your promise and your sacrifice is my only joy, is my only happiness. And so that's what it looks like, right? You can't just say, you can't just say, well, I'm okay with Jesus. He's not looking to make a few small tweaks in your life. You're not just basically okay and you need a few adjustments. You're broken and dead and unresponsive and God wants to give you life through Christ. He wants to give you hope and peace through Christ. There isn't, there isn't another kind. You can't take Jesus marginally. You can't just take a little bit. It's, it's all or nothing. He doesn't offer that other option. There's a, southern, a second implication and that is that heaven and hell are real. What does John say in John 3, 16? Most famous verse ever, right? For God so loved that he gave that whosoever should believe will not perish in hell but have life in heaven. My paraphrase, but that's what it means. Do you get it? There's a reality to consequence for sin and blessing for faith. There's a reality to that. There's a third implication here. And that is this. There's a choice to be made. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses presents to the people of God the same choice that we face today. And he makes it really bluntly. He says, okay, set before you today, God's people, heaven and hell, life and death. That's your choice. Choose wisely. And, and if you read that passage in Deuteronomy, Moses says, hey, listen, with, with a choice for um, faith in God and obedience is blessing and life forever. But there is a serious weight to bear if you choose the alternative. There's a serious weight to bear. Choose God. Choose life. Choose now. That's what he says. There's a fourth uh, implication to this um, Jesus' exclusive claim to be the way. There aren't options. I'm probably not the first to tell you this, and if I am, I'm sorry to pop your bubble, but, but he says that he's the only option. So all the religion the morality, your personal man-made standards of what makes you good or better or good enough, your good pile versus bad pile theology, all that stuff gets blown to shreds when Jesus says, there isn't another way. No one can come to the Father except through me. And you come on his terms. Jesus says, you can't, I will trust in me and you'll receive life. So he removes options. There's a third claim I want you to see in verse 56. And, and I'm going to try to explain this after we go through it a little bit. But it's Jesus claims to be the focus of Old Testament hopes. Look at verse 56 with me. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham rejoiced in seeing Jesus. The Old Testament from the very beginning in Genesis all the way through has been a depiction of God's redemption through Christ. There's never been another way. Sacrifice and religion wasn't the intention. 
It's always been to point to Christ, the Savior who grants by faith grace to sinners. That's his intention from the very beginning. Let me prove my point. Genesis 12, when God promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. He's referring to Christ. When, when uh, Moses is talking about the prophet to come in Deuteronomy 18, he's referring to Christ. When God confronts Satan in Genesis 3, after the fall in the garden, he says, the seed of this woman's going to blow you up. He's going to crush your head. He's going to win. He's referring to Christ. When Isaiah talked about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, he's referring to Jesus. When Daniel talked about the Son of Man in Daniel 7, he's referring to Christ. And and in the the implications of the Day of Atonement for the people of, of God, there was like word pictures everywhere about Jesus. So in the sacrifice for sins of Israel, when the priest would make all sorts of bull sacrifices and blood sacrifices just to clean himself up to represent the people, there was... In essence, two sacrifices that took place. The, this goat, blood sacrifice, and this, this um, other goat that was the scapegoat sacrifice. Do you remember? So here's what happened. After the priest, after Aaron got all cleaned up to re- represent the people, this one goat's blood was spilled to cover the iniquities of all the people. Another goat was symbolically, the hands were placed on the goat's head and all the sin symbolically transferred to the goat and the goat was kicked out of the camp never to be seen again. Implying out loud that sin needs to go by repentance and God will remember it no more. Amen? A wonderful picture in, the, in this, this atonement, this day of atonement of Jesus being the blood sacrifice and Jesus dealing with our sins to such a degree God remembers it no more. It's a good truth. It's an amazing truth. In the Passover example, people of Israel in bondage to, in Egypt, right, to Pharaoh, at the very end of all the plagues and all the consequences for rebellion against God, God says, now the firstborn of every family must die. But he tells, he tells Moses, tell the people of, of mine to take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, a perfect lamb, and have them sacrifice it and paint the doorposts with blood. And wherever the perfect lamb's blood covers them, they will be saved. A picture of Jesus. Do you see? Over and over and over and over again, from the very beginning to the very end, in the Gospels, it's explicit. In the Old Testament, it's, it's types and it's pictures. But it's always been pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament saints look forward to a Redeemer. We look back to a Redeemer. God's intention from the very beginning was salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Do you get it? Do you understand? So for those, I used to work in, um, I used to build swimming pools in Tucson way back in the early 80s. And I got, the first day on the job, I got hooked up with another working partner. His name was Quinn. He was an unmarried 40-some-year-old guy who'd spent some time in a Mexican prison making little rocks out of big rocks. And he lived in a 65 Chevy pickup, and he ate sardines and crackers. And he smelled like fish, okay, that was my working partner at the time. And we would drive around Tucson, and we would have this argument all the time. We'd have this argument about Jesus being so exclusive for salvation. And he, may, he would make this case. He would say, nah, Jesus is a relatively new, uh, new man on the, on the block. There have been other options. I mean, this Christianity thing is a relatively new thing. Just listen to me, okay? In the beginning was God... Man was made, man fell, God redeemed. 
He's covered man from the very beginning. He isn't new. This whole idea of sinners who can't receive what they don't deserve called grace through faith has always been the way it is. Always. It's never changed. Just to, just to inform you, if you're one of those people going, wow, maybe he's one of the options. Or maybe, maybe it really is uh, uh, something that we haven't talked about. Maybe the exclusivity of Christ and his claims is too narrow. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, this is not the new kid on the block. This has always been God's intention from the beginning of, of man. There's one more claim that Jesus makes. It's probably the boldest claim of all. It's in verse 58. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. So Jesus claims, first of all, to be eternal by saying before Abraham was, he was. And then he implies the name of God to himself. Let me give you a little background. In uh, Exodus chapter 3, Moses has the burning bush experience. He sees off on a hillside this bush on fire and not being consumed. Really interesting, right? So you run up and see what's going on in the bush. Suddenly, suddenly a voice. And we know from the text that it's God speaking to Moses, preparing him for all that he's going to do with God's people and him. And when Moses is trying to get his head around God introducing himself, he said, okay, wait a minute. i got to go back and represent you to these people who you say I'm supposed to lead. Who do I tell them sent me? What's your name? And he said... I am. You just tell him I am. It's not poor grammar on Jesus' part. He's not screwing up the language. He's intentionally saying out of all the words, he picks the holy word for the Hebrew people, I am. The only phrase you have to describe the all-existing one, the all-powerful one, that's my name. I am. His claim to be God, eternal. Who, who else could say that? Who else would dare say that, Right? No other prophet other than Jesus could dare say, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Nobody has ever said that. No other prophet could say, if you do not believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. Seven I am statements, bold statements in John's gospel. Declarations by Jesus. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you will never be hungry or thirsty again. Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world, and if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. In John 10, I am the door. If you come through me, you will be saved. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, and I lay my life down for my sheep. John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. John 15, he says, I am divine, and everything you need comes from me. Pretty narrow, right? Pretty bold. I am. He makes that statement. Now, it's easy, um, it's easy to think that possibly Jesus misfired on that one. Like, he didn't really mean to say it so strong um, to imply that he was God. But if you notice the text, you're going to find out that is exactly what he meant. First of all, the Jews who heard him understood him as saying that. They picked up rocks to kill him for that, what they perceived to be blasphemy. They knew he was claiming divinity. And they were ready to destroy him for that. Secondly, Jesus, if he did make a mistake, did nothing to stop them from that effort. He didn't say, hey, well, wait a minute. I maybe misspoke here. I didn't mean I am. I meant something else. He didn't stop them at all. In fact, all throughout the scriptures, not only did he not deny that, he made those bold claims. He received worship everywhere he went. He knew he was God. He wasn't hiding. He told everybody he was God. He forgave sins and he healed people and he gave life. 
That's who Jesus is. So what do you do with this? What do you do with this? Well, first of all, if, you, if you've been here for the last three weeks and you're going, all right, I'll, I'll check this Jesus out. I, I want you to know that Jesus can be known. God can be known through Jesus. Definitively and personally. This, this idea of God being a concept or some distant figure that has no interest in real, real life or real people, or real stories. This God. This Jesus can be known personally. This God can be known definitively. In fact, in John 1, John says, No one has ever seen God but God, the one and only, who is Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus comes to this earth in front of us to say, I want to introduce you to this God, of which he's so distant you would never know. John 14, 9, Jesus said, and he was talking to Philip at the time, and Philip says, show us the Father. Come on, Jesus, show us the Father. You talk about him all the time. And, and, and I think a little bit frustrated with, with Philip, Jesus says, how, how, have I been with you so long that you still don't know me? When you've seen the Father, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? There's a second thing I want you to think about, and that is that redemption's possible. It's been accomplished through Christ. That word might be a little bit big, like, I don't know what redemption means. Let me, let me put it in this way. The Bible says that sin is slavery. Have you not been there? Trapped? Repetitively failing in the same way with your sinful bent always leaning towards whatever it is, anger, lust, coveting. You feel trapped. You feel stuck. Of course you do. Every man does. Every woman does. Because the, the, the real issue with sin is it, it, it enslaves us and it judges us. And that's, that's a reality. We're locked in it. Redemption is the word that says, I'll buy you out of slavery. Redemption is God's word that says, where you are and you can't get out of, I'm coming to get you. And take you to some place that you wouldn't get without me. Redemption. Jesus makes the payment to God for our sins. Jesus takes the punishment from God for our sins. Jesus satisfies the righteous wrath of God for our sins. Jesus represents us. He stands before the Father for us. He says, this one's mine. I've covered him in my blood. You, you can know redemption through Christ. In fact, Paul says to, to Timothy... 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, and that is who? Right? So here we have holy, perfect, awesome, righteous, wrathful, great God. And puny little us over here constantly shaking our fist at him, right? And who bridges that gap? Who makes a way? Say it. Yes, he does. You can't bridge it. You can't be good enough. You can't climb the line. You can't, you can, you'll just fall. Just like it says, everyone falls short. God makes a way. One other thing to notice, and that is this, that we can have confidence in Christ. Let me say that again, and you listen very carefully. You can have confidence in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews tells us this in chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore... Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Very interesting, the phrase or the words that he uses. You know, the, the throne of God for people who believe in Jesus has a new name. 
been changed. It's changed at the throne of grace. For those who reject Christ, who say, ah, he's just an option, he's not the way, and I'm going to try my good pile, bad pile theology on it and see if it works out. Just, just so you know, it won't work out. There isn't another option because you'll face the throne of God, which is really the throne of judgment and holiness. Standing on your own two spiritual legs before a God who is perfect is a consequence you can't bear. You take Jesus, you stand in front of the throne of grace. And floods and floods of grace and mercy wash over your inabilities and your perpetual failures. You understand? There's, a, there's a, a, a better way to use that word confidence. The, the word is, is better translated bold frankness. You can have a bold frankness. Now, I think there's two sides to this sympathetic Savior that we see in Hebrews 4, right? There's this idea that, hey, he got in our mess. I mean, he really, he left heaven and he took on flesh and he walked in the dirt and he ate like we did and he suffered like we did and he experienced temptation like we do. This is a Jesus who knows what it's like to be me. So therefore, I don't have to worry about this disconnect between God and man because God became man for me. And so when I pour out my heart and my burdens and my failures and my longings, he knows there has to be no translation. He's got it all figured out. Now, there is confidence in that, right? That is a truth. But that isn't the essence of the confidence. The essence of the confidence and the real reason for the confidence is that Jesus has reconciled us to God. Think about this. What if God took on flesh and came to this earth and experienced life from our vantage point? And what if he didn't go to the cross and bear the weight of our sin and grant us righteousness not of our own? Where would you, where would you find confidence then? To know he was a nice guy that decided to see life from my side of the, the street wouldn't bring any hope at all. The fact that Jesus did everything to bridge the gap that exists between a holy God and sinful man, that gives you confidence. So when, church, listen very carefully, and if you're an unbeliever listening to this message and you're worn out by your choices and your sins and your failures, if that's you, what you want more than anything is to have God change your address and change your name and title to beloved child of the king, to cover your mess so completely and so perfectly that Psalm 103 can be true of you. As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed your transgressions from you, and he remembers your sin no more. Amen? That's the best hope we could ever have, that God won't bring it up again and judge me by it again. He covers it completely. I have confidence. Even though in the midst of my tears, knowing what I've done and knowing my failures, I can stand on the promise of God. That's where confidence comes from, right? The truth. A couple of things left. Jesus deserves our worship because he is the one and only You've heard this before, but C.S. Lewis talked about the options Jesus does or doesn't present to us about who he is. He's either a, a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. Have you heard that before? Like out of all the options that people choose to feel about Jesus, like, oh, he's a great teacher, or he's a moral guy, or he's worth following, at least his instructions, or be like Jesus in his behavior, Jesus doesn't give you a moral teacher option. Some say he's evil. Some say he's nuts, like he was just crazy thinking he was God. And, and that isn't true. Let me, let me read to you precisely uh, C.S. Lewis's quote. 
I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him as his claim to God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. You see? It's not an option. And one last little thing that I have to present to you today. And that's probably more precise for the church. Like I watch your heads and you're nodding and you're agreeing and you love the picture of Christ. Well, then here's what it says. He deserves more than a half heart. Right? Like in in the essence of the greatest command, what it is to love Jesus is heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if you're like me, that's the hard one, isn't it? To say, I love, Je- I love this Jesus, this God Jesus, this sacrificial Jesus, this provision for my sins Jesus so much, he'll get everything I've got. Isn't that hard? Will you admit that, church? It's hard, but he deserves it. He deserves it. Now, I, I have a thousand things I regret that I've said in my life and I'm probably getting ready for a thousand more if I know me well enough. But Jesus wasn't making a mistake. This was no slip of the tongue. He was doing precisely what he came to do, and that was to introduce God to man, to tell us who he was, and to show us what he provides for those who confess and believe. And he's calling us to a decision. This isn't just information to add to your bucket of knowledge. This is a deciding factor in life. Do you understand? This is the, the moment of truth. In fact, just like, just like Moses presented to the people, hey, it's a life and death choice now. God is presenting for you heaven and hell. Which will you choose? Will you choose God? And I'd be stupid and it'd be malpractice if I didn't say to you, unbeliever, like whoever's here who's just kicking the tires on Christ, God is presenting to you life or death. He's presenting to you heaven or hell. And the scriptures are real clear on the distance between hell and heaven, right? To those who aren't any different than you, who confess, first of all, that's just simply agreeing with God about what he already knows about you, that you don't measure up. He knows all the secrets and all the pretentious things we do to present ourselves in ways that people will like us. God already knows the junk. Just confess it and then repent. Repentance is a military word to describe an about face. Turn from your sin. Turn to your Savior. And then believe. Believe that Jesus is who he said he is and he provides what he said he would provide. By faith alone in Christ alone, you will be saved. Saved from you, saved from the consequences of sin, saved from God's wrath, saved from God's judgment, and saved into eternal life and joy with him. It's amazing, right? But I have to leave you this. Some people say he's just a good teacher. Some say he's crazy. What do you say? We're going to pray in just a little bit after worship, and there are going to be some folks down front who would love to pray for you. If God, if God has introduced himself to you right now, he's convicting your heart, you would be a fool to walk out of here and not finish this thing, to 
put your faith and trust in Christ and not just continue on the, the way you've been, right? Let's pray.